0: Would you bow with me in a word of prayer? Our Father, how good you are to us as your children, that we may come to your throne of grace and receive grace and mercy in our time of need. And Father, every Sunday we come to you in a time of need. We need your grace. We need your sustenance. We need your encouragement. We need your strength. And most of all, Lord, we need to see Christ. We need to see his beauty and his glory that our hearts we brought to worship him and treasure him above all things. So would you come, Holy Spirit, and illumine our hearts to understand your truth. Would you come be our teacher and open up the word to us that you may glorify Christ in this time And that our hearts will be brought to rejoice as a result. We give this time to you and pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, please open them to the second chapter of the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. This morning we are working our way through the epistle of the Philippians. It is the epistle of joy. It is the epistle in which Paul expresses his joy in Christ. And we have come in our study to one of the most cherished and beloved passages in all the New Testament, Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11. Let's read this passage together. Paul says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now it is clear from the reading of this text that the subject of this passage is Jesus Christ In verse 5, Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And in verse 11, he says, Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is the subject of this passage. Jesus, the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew name Joshua, a name that means Yahweh saves, or the Lord is salvation. And Christ, a transliteration of the Greek title Christos, meaning anointed one or Messiah, the promised one in the Old Testament prophecies. This is a passage about Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God and Son of Man. And brothers and sisters, this is a passage about a very specific attribute of Jesus Christ. It is not just Christ in general, but it is a specific attribute of his character, and that attribute is his humility. It is about the humility of Christ. Verse 8 says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In our previous study, we have defined humility as a lowliness of mind. Humility is a servant's mindset. Humility is a mindset or an attitude which considers others as more significant than yourself. And Paul, in this passage, is calling the Philippians to walk in humility. In verse 3, he said, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And in verse 4, he applied that attitude by saying, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. As Paul calls the church to unity in their fellowship. He identifies humility as the key ingredient to that unity. He explains how that humility will manifest itself in the fellowship of the church as each individual Christian begins caring for each other, looking not only to themselves, but also to the things of others. And having discussed all that, he now moves in verse 5 and presents the ultimate example of humility the ultimate model of humility whom the Christian is to identify and follow. And that example is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul is saying to the church, I want you to look at, at the model of Christ. And I want you to adopt his mindset as your own. This passage has been called a Christological gem. It has been called a theological diamond that is unlike any other. It is a passage which takes us from eternity past to historical events to eternity future. It is a passage which takes us from the glories of heaven to the depths of the crucifixion and then back up to the glories of heaven again. As a passage, it covers the deity of Jesus Christ. It covers the preexistence of Jesus Christ. It covers the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, and the second coming of Jesus Christ. All of this theology is contained in these precious words written by Paul. And yet, in the midst of all of this theology, Paul writes this passage with a very practical purpose. His purpose in presenting to us the glory of Christ is to call the church to humility. He's saying, Philippians, walk in humility. Be humble toward one another. Consider one another more important than yourselves. Don't just look to your own interests. Look to the interests of those in the church. He begins in verse 5 with an imperative, with an exhortation. He says, have this mind among yourselves. Freneo, think in this way. Or as the NASB puts it, have this attitude. Let your perspective toward the church be the perspective of Christ as he looked at his creation." He says, have this mind among yourselves that is in the fellowship of the church, in your relationships with one another. And then he says, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Paul is calling the Philippians to have their minds be conformed to the mind of Christ. To have the way that their attitudes are shaped toward one another to have their attitudes be conformed to Christ's attitude. And he says that Christ's attitude is one of humility. It is humility. Among all of the attributes of Christ, the one attribute that I find the most perplexing, the most befuddling, the the, the one attribute that I just don't seem to be able to grasp my mind around is Christ's humility. I mean, I get omnipotence and omniscience and glory and being the creator of all things and being the king of kings and the lord of lords, but in the midst of all of Christ's glorious attributes, for him to have the mindset of humility. This is One of the most astounding truths in all of Scripture. And yet this is the truth that Paul presents to us. In calling the Philippians to walk in humility, Paul unfolds to us three features of Christ's redeeming work. Three features of what Jesus did on our behalf that we may walk in a manner that is humble after him. First of all, We will see the glory of Christ's incarnation. Second, we will see the agony of Christ's crucifixion. And thirdly, we will see the triumph of Christ's exaltation. The incarnation of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus, and the exaltation of Jesus are the focal points of this passage in which Paul calls the church to walk in humility. First of all, let us consider the glory of Christ's incarnation. The glory of Christ's incarnation. Incarnation is a word that comes from the Latin incarnate, which means in flesh. It simply refers to the truth that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. And in verse 5, Paul unfolds to us the glory of Christ's incarnation. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God. Now, just want to stop there and begin by saying that that Paul highlights the fact that Jesus Christ pre-incarnation, before he came to earth, Jesus Christ was in the form of God. He was in the form of God. Paul specifically uses the Greek term morphe in verse 6. The word morphe emphasizes the underlying reality of external appearance. It is a word that describes essence or innate being. The word morphe could be best understood in comparison to the Greek word schema. Schema emphasizes outward experience, but not internal being. Those of you who are at the fall festival know that my daughter dressed up as a cat for Halloween. She had the schema of her cat. But her morphe, her internal being, was human being. Now what? I think she would have loved to have the morphe of a cat and be magically transformed inside and out into a cat. But she had to settle for schema, outward experience. What Paul is saying here is when Jesus Christ was in the morphe of God, he is emphasizing the internal Essence of deity that belonged to Jesus Christ. He is saying in plain and unmistakable words that Jesus Christ was fully God. The NIV translates this that Jesus Christ was in the nature of God. He is emphasizing the fact that Jesus Christ possessed deity in essence, in nature, that for eternity past, before time, before the creation began that Jesus Christ was fully God. Colossians 1.15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Hebrews 1.8 says, But of the Son, He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. God. And Isaiah 9-6 calls Jesus Christ by these exalted titles, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Consider, brothers and sisters, that for eternity past, before the created order began, forever and ever going on to the past, that Jesus Christ possessed the full nature of deity, that he dwelt in perfect unity, and perfect harmony with God the Father and God the Spirit, perfectly self-sufficient, perfectly self-existent, that he is the uncreated one without any point of origination and without any dependence upon anyone or anything. He was in the form of God. And because Jesus Christ was in the form of God, Colossians 1:16 tells us that all of the created order, everything that was ever made was made by Jesus Christ. He spoke the world and the universe into existence. All things were made by him. Colossians 1:16 for by him that is by Christ all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. John 1.3 says, all things were made through him and without him was not anything that was made. Hebrews 2.10 says, of the Son, he says, you Lord laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning and the heavens are the work of your hands, Jesus Christ being in the form of God, existing in eternity past. At some point, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit determined to create. And the scriptures testify that all things that were made were made by Jesus Christ. One of the things that I've done in My spare time is to study a little bit of astronomy. Astronomy is the study of the works of Jesus Christ. It is the study of the created order which Jesus Christ has made, which is an expression of his essential deity. And consider some basic facts from astronomy, the observation of what Jesus has made. Consider the fact that the sun is three 133,000 times the size of this earth. It is so massive that it contains over 99% of matter in this solar system. If the earth were a golf ball, the sun would be 15 feet in diameter and you could fit 1 million earths into the volume of the sun. Yet also consider that the sun is merely a small star in the Milky Way galaxy. It is what astronomers call a dwarf star, because in light of other stars, it really isn't very big. The star Betelgeuse, for example, is approximately 700 times the size of our sun if the earth were a golf ball and the sun was a ball that was 15 feet in diameter, then Betelgeuse would be the height of six empire state buildings staked on top of one another. You could fit 262 trillion earths inside the star Betelgeuse. Absolutely massive star. And yet, Betelgeuse isn't even the largest star in the Milky Way galaxy. The star Musifi, and I don't make up the names, I just report them to you. Musifi has a radius of approximately 1,650 times the radius of our sun. You could fit 4.5 billion suns. Let me repeat that. 4.5 billion suns inside the star Musifi. And Musifi is so large that you could fit 6.4 quadrillion earths inside of it. And for you who aren't math majors, a quadrillion is the unit beyond a trillion. It is a hundred million million units. You could fit 6.4 hundred million million Earths inside of the star Musifi. Consider this, Musifi is but one of hundreds of billions of stars in the Milky Way galaxy. And the Milky Way galaxy, astronomers tell us, is merely one of a hundred billion galaxies in the entire created order are you feeling small yet listen to this job 26:14 behold these are but the outskirts of his ways when you look at the galaxies that Jesus Christ has created, it is but the pinky work of his supreme power. It is just one week's work for Jesus Christ in which he spoke and all of the created order came into existence. When Paul says in verse Six, that Jesus was in the form of God, that he possessed essential deity. He is emphasizing the sovereignty of Jesus Christ, the supremacy of Jesus Christ, the omnipotence of Jesus Christ, the wisdom and the knowledge and the power of Jesus Christ. He is emphasizing to us that in order to understand the humility of Jesus Christ, we must understand who Jesus was before he came to earth. We must understand that Jesus Christ had the greatest humility because he started from the highest place. That his humility is the greatest because he had the most rights and the most privileges to give up to begin with. And to consider the fact that Jesus Christ being in the form of God, being the one who spoke the world into existence, being the one who upholds the power of the stars in his hands and who sustains moment by moment each of His part of his creation. To consider the fact that he at the same time had a mindset of humility, He would consider others more important than himself? This is the truth that is absolutely staggering. And yet verse 6 tells us this is exactly what Jesus did. He said, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. The idea of grasping or clinging is a very vivid word. The idea is that he didn't consider his rights and his privileges as deity, something to be held closely to, to be tightly grasped and used for his own selfish purposes. He had all the rights of deity. He had the right to be worshipped. He had the right to be proclaimed. He had the right to be praised. He had the right to be treasured above all things, and yet he did not hold, cling, cling tightly to those rights but he let them go. And instead, verse 7 says, he made himself nothing. The NASB translates this, he emptied himself. Kino'o in the Greek, from which we get the theological term kenosis. The kenosis describes the self-emptying of Jesus Christ. Having all the rights and privileges of deity, Jesus emptied himself. He Poured himself out is the idea. What did Jesus empty himself of? Some say that he emptied himself of his essential deity. That he emptied himself of certain attributes such as his omnipotence or his omniscience. And in this way, somehow he became lesser than God. But this is not the teaching of this text. Look at verse 7 again. It says he made himself nothing. He poured himself out. How? By taking the form of a servant. The self-emptying of Jesus Christ was not expressed in a subtraction of his deity. No, it was expressed in the addition of humanity. It was not that Jesus Christ became any lesser God. It was that Jesus Christ being God and possessing the essence of God, also at a point in time, took on the full nature of man. In this way, he poured out all his rights and privileges, and he emptied himself. Now, this is what theologians call the miracle of the incarnation. Incarnate, in flesh, God in human flesh. In the miracle of the incarnation, Jesus Christ, his divine nature, was joined inseparably with a human nature. He made himself nothing, taking the form, the morphe of a servant. He took on the essential being of a slave in his humanity. And this, brothers and sisters, is the most astounding miracle in the history of the world. The divine nature of Jesus Christ, inseparably and eternally joined together with God, The human nature of Jesus Christ, so that in one person you have 100% true deity and 100% true humanity. This is the most amazing miracle in the history of the world. Wayne Grudem writes this it is by far the most amazing miracle of the entire Bible. It is far more amazing than the resurrection. It is more amazing even than the creation of the universe. The fact that the infinite, omnipotent, eternal Son of God could become man and join himself to a human nature forever. This will remain for eternity the most profound miracle and the most profound mystery in all the universe. Think about it, brothers and sisters. In eternity past, Jesus Christ was 100% God, fully possessing the essential nature of deity. At a point in time, at the moment of conception in the womb of the Virgin Mary, Through the power of the Holy Spirit, the divine nature of Jesus Christ took on a human nature so that Jesus Christ became fully man as he is fully God. That joining together of divinity and humanity is an eternal union. In other words, after Jesus dies, and after he rises, and after he ascends to the Father, he is still the man, Christ Jesus. 1 Timothy 2.5 calls him the man, Christ Jesus. If I could put it in this way, for eternity future in heaven, for the ages and ages where we will worship the Lamb of God in heaven, we will forever be worshiping a man. Because Jesus Christ is fully human as well as fully God. This union of humanity and deity resulted in the God man who walked among us. His natures were not confused, it was not that his divinity and his humanity were sort of melded together and resulting in a third kind of nature. No. They are distinct and yet they are inseparably joined together. It is not that we see at and sometimes the human Jesus acting and other times we see the di- divine Jesus acting. It is we see at all times Jesus, the person, the one person acting and yet he is one person in two natures this is the most profound miracle and the most profound mystery in all the universe that god would become man and what paul is saying in verse 6 is it is through the addition of this human nature that jesus emptied himself it is by taking on the nature of finite humanity jesus christ poured out all his rights and all his privileges As God. And verse 7 says, He was born in the likeness of men. That's an incredible statement. The God who created the universe, the God who holds the galaxies and the stars in His hands, He was born. He was born. He didn't drop out of the sky like a UFO. He didn't come flying down on a magic carpet with all sorts of spectacular special effects. He was born just like billions have been born since, and billions will be born afterwards. He was born. He entered the world like a normal human, and he was born in the likeness of men. He was born to a young virgin named Mary in a little town called Bethlehem. At his birth, he was laid in a manger because there was no room for them at the inn, He looked like any other normal human baby. And as he grew, he grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and men. He grew up just like any normal Jewish child. He looked like any normal Jew. Isaiah 53.2 says, He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. There was no point in Christ's life where people would have said, Aha! You're God, right? I figured it out. I mean, you must be. You just look so different from everyone else. No. He looked like nothing special, in the likeness of men, full humanity. He grew up in an obscure place called Nazareth. He had brothers and sisters, and he worked in a carpenter shop with his dad doing menial labor for a number of years. And when he began his public ministry, the people said, is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? The point is, he he was made in the likeness of men. He was born in the likeness of men. His appearance was human. Human. point is this, when Jesus Christ emptied himself by taking on human form, he really really emptied himself he poured himself out until there was nothing left he did this by taking on the nature of full humanity in this he went from being the sovereign ruler of all creation to possessing the form, the morphe The essence of a slave. Now, at this point, I think we would all say, that's enough humbling. I mean, that's enough. I mean, you mean to tell me that the God of this universe, who is eternal in nature, who spoke the stars and the galaxies, into existence, came down to earth and walked among us as a man, not merely taking on the body of humanity, but the full nature, the intellect, the emotions, the nature of humanity, the essence. That's enough humbling. I mean, if I saw the President of the United States shining someone's shoes, I would say that's enough. I would protest. You are a man of dignity. You are a man of stature. You are a man of power. You don't belong there. I mean, the gesture is nice. I'm sure it looks nice for the TV cameras, but that is enough. But verse 8 tells us that the humbling of Jesus Christ did not stop in his incarnation. And in verse 8, we move from the glory of his incarnation to the agony of his crucifixion. The agony of his crucifixion. Verse 8 says, "And being found in human form, he humbled himself. You say, what? Didn't he already humble himself? You mean to say he humbled himself further? How much lower can you go? Verse 8 tells us, By becoming obedient to the point of death. And I love how Paul points out that the humbling of Jesus Christ was in obedience to the Father. It was in submission to the Father that Jesus Christ came to this earth. It was in obedience to his Father that Jesus Christ embraced his earthly mission. It was in submission to the Father's will that Jesus Christ embraced his ultimate purpose in life. And his ultimate purpose in life was not to set a good moral example. And it was not to teach good ethical teachings. His ultimate purpose in life was to give his life as a sacrifice for others. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John the Baptist said. And what was the function of a lamb? The function of a lamb was to be slain. It was to die as a sacrifice for others. Jesus understood his mission. Jesus understood his purpose in life. Jesus understood why the Father has sent him to this earth and why the Father has sent him to take on the the nature of true humanity. Mark 8.31, Jesus began to teach that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. I mean, you think about it. The whole life of Jesus Christ was an expression of his humility, wasn't it? I mean, his whole life from childhood to his public ministry to the end of his days, was the whole thing was humble. I mean, a, a childhood in total obscurity, seen by no one, known by no one, and then being raised up in a normal Jewish home. And then his public ministry was a ministry of absolute humility, wasn't it? I mean, he didn't spend his time with a political elite. He didn't spend his time with the religious leaders. He spent his time with 12 disciples who were hard-hearted and who didn't understand anything that he was saying, and one of whom was a traitor and who would be trained to death. He spent his time with the poor and with the outcast and with the humble. He touched lepers. He healed the blind. He raised the dead. He touched the, the demoniacs and cast out their demons. I mean, the whole life of Jesus Christ was one of humility. He had no home. The Son of Man, he said, has no place to lay his head. He was a man who knew betrayal. He was a man who knew abandonment. Most Bible scholars say that Jesus must have lost his earthly father, Joseph, at some point in his life because we have no mention of Joseph in later records after Christ grows up. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was as from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. The whole life of Jesus Christ was an expression of lowliness and servanthood and humble giving away, pouring out all of his rights and privileges. And yet, the greatest expression of Christ's humility was not his life. The greatest expression of Christ's humility was his death. The point in which Jesus Christ emptied himself out at the fullest degree was his death. It was the embracing of his mission. It was the embracing of his purpose. He became obedient to the point of death. And then Paul says, even death on a cross. At this point in Paul's passage, we have stooped to the lowest low. At this point in Paul's presentation, we have reached the most degrading pit of humiliation that any human being can go. We have descended to the most disgusting place of abject lowliness that any human can descend to the lowest pit of any man in human history would to be put to death on a cross and this would be the depths to which Christ would descend the romans did not invent crucifixion the persians did centuries prior to the life of christ It has been called the most painful death ever invented by humankind. Crucifixion was designed to inflict the maximum amount of pain and humiliation upon a victim before his death. The Romans had taken this method of execution and they had reduced it to an exact science. They used it as a deterrent for rebellion. The condemned man would be forced to carry his crossbeam to the place of execution. At that place, his hands would be nailed to the crossbeam and the beam would be lifted up. Before all to see, at this point his feet would be nailed into place and the condemned man would be stripped naked and left exposed in horrific agony. Death came by suffocation as the victim dragged himself up and down so as to make breathing possible. And the agony would continue for hours, even days. One author writes, Few more terrible means of execution could be devised. Pain, thirst, the torture of insects, exposure to brutal spectators, the horror of rigid fixation, this all combined to make it a supreme humiliation and torture. We know that in the gospel records, that before Christ was crucified, he was unjustly tried, he was flogged, he was blindfolded, he was beaten, he was spit on, he was beaten with a stick pressed down upon his head was a crown of thorns. He was mocked. Even as he died on the cross, they cried out, he saved others, let him save himself. Yet even in the midst of all the physical agony and the physical pain, the physical suffering of Christ's crucifixion, his physical pain was not, it was not the lowest low to which he would descend. No, brothers and sisters, the lowest low, the severest humiliation, the most abject pit would be when Christ on that cross took every single sin, sin that you and I have ever committed and bore our sins on the cross. Second Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, He, that is God, made Him who is Christ to be sin who knew no sin. In the three hours that darkness came over the land, God the Father looked at God the Son and imputed to Jesus, that is, treated Jesus as if He had sinned every single one of our sins. In those terrible hours, Jesus Christ became the most loathsome object of holy wrath. And the Father unleashed his anger upon Christ. This was the lowest point. This was the most degrading pit to which Christ voluntarily descended to. It was when he bore our curse. It is when he took our blame. And It is when he paid our price. Jonathan Edwards, in his sermon entitled The Excellency of Christ, writes this, There do meet in Jesus Christ infinite highness and infinite condescension. Christ, as he is God, is infinitely great and high above all, and yet he is also one of infinite condescension. Behold, his condescension is enough to abase himself, to even expose himself to shame and spitting, yea, to yield himself up to death. Consider he deserved nothing from God. By any guilt of his own. He deserved no ill from men. He was infinitely worthy, worthy of the infinite love of the Father, worthy of infinite and eternal happiness. Yet Christ was in the greatest degree treated as a wicked person would have been. He was apprehended and bound as a malefactor. His accusers represented him as a most wicked wretch. In his sufferings before his crucifixion, he was treated as if he had been the worst and the vilest of mankind. He suffered as though guilty from God himself by reason of our guilt imputed to him, for he who knew no sin was made sin for us. And Edwards concludes, then was Christ in the greatest degree of his humiliation. And yet by that, above all other things, His divine glory appears. There is no such conjunction of innocence, worthiness, and patience under sufferings as is in the person of Christ. Paul takes us from the glories of heaven to the humbling of Christ in his incarnation. He then takes us from the earth in which we walked down to the agonies of crucifixion. And then in verse 9, he says one of the most beautiful words in all the Bible. Therefore. Therefore. Meaning, this story is not over. Meaning, the cross is not the end. It is the means to an end. Therefore, which means that the gospel message does not end with Jesus dying on the cross. The gospel message focuses on Jesus dying on the cross and then it extends to the triumph that Christ experienced in his exaltation. After covering the glory of his incarnation and the agony of his crucifixion, Paul now moves in verse nine to the triumph of his exaltation and he says therefore God has highly exalted him You know, I don't believe that this is just that Christ went back to he regained the rights and privileges that he had before his incarnation I don't believe that this is just that Christ gave up his rights and he came to earth and he became a man and then he just reversed that and he became God again That's not what Paul is saying here. Paul is pointing to a specific act of exaltation that is in response to the specific work of Christ's redemption. He's referring to the exaltation of Jesus Christ not just as creator, but as redeemer. Not just as God, but as the God-man. He says, therefore, in response to what Christ has done in dying on the cross, God has highly exalted him. He has bear hoopso, He has exalted him above all powers and all authorities. You say, "But isn't that Dan who he was? He was God. He was already exalted above all powers and authorities. Yes. But here, what Paul is pointing to is that now God has exalted the man, Christ Jesus, above all authorities and all powers. That's different. God has highly exalted him, and he has bestowed on him the name that is above every name. This verse encompasses the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This verse encompasses the ascension of Jesus Christ. Romans 8.34 tells us that Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of God. He is exalted to the highest place, and he has been given the name that is above every name. You say, what is that name? Verse 11 tells us it is the name Lord Curious master, sovereign, ruler over all. Revelation 19, 16. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. So that, verse 10, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. When does this occur? It occurs at the time of his second coming. It is at the time of Christ's bodily return to this earth. Why? Why? You say, Dan, why do you say that? Because he mentions those who are on the earth. All those who are on the earth at the time of Christ's return will bow. Some will bow out of a loving expression of their faith in him because he is the, he is the longing of their hearts and they have waited for this day. And others will bow in forced submission. Out of their unbelief would clench teeth. They will be forced to bow to his lordship. They will look on him whom they have pierced and they will mourn, Zechariah twelve ten tells us. And all those who are on the earth will bow. All those who are in heaven, the redeemed, will bow. And all those who are under the earth, possibly a reference to fallen angels, will bow. The entire created order will bow to the lordship of the man, Christ Jesus, because God the Father has exalted this man above every name, and he has given him the title King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And verse 11 says, Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Some say this passage was a hymn, that it was sung in the early church as a means of remembering Christ. In this passage, we have been taken to the depths of the heart of the gospel, Christ's redeeming work on our behalf. We have been taken from eternity past to eternity future. We have covered the deity of Christ, the preexistence of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ, the resurrection, the ascension, the second coming of Christ. And yet, as we draw our thoughts together, I want to remind you of the point that we began, that the purpose in which Paul writes all of this is practical. He has written all of this to make one simple point to the Philippian church. And that is, Philippians, I want you to be humble. Be humble. Have this mindset among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And that is the conclusion that I would exhort you with as a church. Brothers and sisters, in light of who Jesus is, and in light of who Christ what Christ has done, if we are believers and followers of Him, ought we not to be humble people? Ought not we to look on others as more important than ourselves? Ought we not to say in our hearts that we will do nothing from rivalry or vain conceit? We will look at the interests of others and not just the interests of ourselves. Ought not the culture of our marriages to be different? Spouses humbly serving one another with the servant's attitude of Christ. Should not our parenting of our children be different? Not lording it over them but humbly serving them with the truth of God. Should not our dynamics of our fellowship and our care groups and our small groups and our relationships with one another be different? May we not miss the point that Paul wrote this great passage. Have this mindset among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Let's bow in prayer together and close our time. Our gracious Father, we come to you this morning and we bow. we bow the knee before the Sovereign Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we gladly confess with our lips that He is the King of kings and that He is the Lord of lords. And as we consider, Lord Jesus, the depths to which You humbled Yourself, Oh Lord, how we stand in amazement at the cross upon which you died. And we ask, oh Lord, that you would make us humble people. That you would help us, Lord, to repent of the pride that is in our hearts. That you would help us, Lord, to have the mindset of Christ. Lord, help us to give up our rights. Our privileges, our desires, in service to others, that Christ may be glorified in our lives. We give you praise and thanks in Jesus' name.